You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com back to the program, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett at CorbettReport.com. That's C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. And I'm coming to you today, as every day, from the sunny climes of western Japan, where it is currently the 20th day of December 2012, a.k.a. 24 hours to doomsday. So, at any rate, let's go through some news and information tonight. We're just going to go through some headlines and uh, try to find out what's going on in the world. And we will have open phone lines tonight if there's anything that you guys want to bring in. Any topics you want to raise, questions you want to ask, or comments you want to make, 1-800-313-9443. But I just got off the air with Adam versus the Man at adamversustheman.com. So, I have, uh, just, I'm just getting all of my notes in order. So while I'm doing that, why don't we go through just this story that uh, kind of picks up from something that we were talking about on the program last night, where we were talking about Japan and the change that's coming in leadership here, as well as the change that's happening or due to happen in the leadership of the Bank of Japan and what this means for the global economy. And the Telegraph has this story uh, that puts it pretty bluntly uh, just up a few hours ago. Uh, Japan's Shinzo Abe prepares to print money for the whole world. Japan's incoming leader Shinzo Abe has vowed to ram through full-blown reflation policies to pull his country out of, out of a slump and drive down the yen, warning Japan's central bank not to defy the will of the people. The profound shift in economic strategy by the world's top creditor nation could prove a powerful tonic for the global economy, with stimulus leaking into bursts and bond markets a variant of the carry trade earlier this decade, but potentially on a larger scale. We think this could be the beginning of a fresh reflation cycle for the global system, combining with the U.S. recovery <laughs> recovery, to mark a turning point in the crisis, said Simon Derrick from BNY Mellon. It is tre- tremendously important for global growth, and markets are starting to take note. And here we go. The introduction of the meme that this is all part of a recovery and that this is all going to be uh, for the good. It's Shinzo Abe and the Bank of Japan are printing money for the world when they turn on the spigots and just start their unlimited quantitative easing at the Bank of Japan. Flood the world with cheap yen and we can start the yen carry trade again and get all of that good stuff going. And that will be the sign that the world economy is surely back on track. And as they note, the U.S. economy is recovering apace, so I guess everything is tickety-boo in the land of fake economics. Of course, what they're really talking about is not any type of real, actual growth in the world economy. What they're talking about is inflating the money supply, making more money available, and that does not in any way translate to an increase in economic activity. But let's leave that part out of the equation, because inflation is a good thing, or at least it is in the land of the rising sun, where we've had deflation for two decades, so they want to inflate their currency away, because uh, the yen has been rising. So if you can drive down that yen, you can increase exports, and Japan will, their days of economic powerhouseness will return, to coin a phrase. Or that's the theory anyway. But uh, hmm, we have some con- contradictory stories also coming out from the Telegraph. In fact, right now, just on the uh, related stories to that story we were just reading, World Bank fears fresh credit bubble in China on hot money flows. 
which as China and Asia's tigers are roaring back to life and risk a fresh credit boom unless they can choke inflows of hot money, the World Bank has warned. Well, that's bizarre. Where is all this excessive credit coming from? Where is this hot money flowing in from? How is it? How is all of this money flowing into the Chinese economy right now? Oh, that's right. It's because there's a coordinated race to the base, a race to the bottom that's going on between all the central banks right now, whether it be the Federal Reserve there in the States or the Bank of England, the Bank of Canada, the Bank of Japan, wherever it is, just turn on the money print printing presses and let it rip and suddenly now we're being warned about a credit bubble in china wow that's who would have expected something like that except for people with a basic understanding of economics well that's the type of stuff that we're going to be looking at tonight once again the phone lines are open 1-800-313-9443 let's take a short break and we'll be back with more news and headlines right after this just want you for their games and it's a question of whether or not you're going to play and if so if you're going to play by their rules and those might be separate questions altogether but welcome back to the program friends once again you're tuned into corbett report radio here on the republic broadcasting network and i am your host james corbett of corbettreport.com that's c-o-r-b-e-t-t report.com tonight we're going over news headlines information and we'll take your calls as well if you want to get in on the conversation. But let's start off tonight by talking about something that I was just talking about. As I say on Adam versus the Man, we just had a pretty in-depth conversation about the idea of techno-utopianism, which I suppose is the other side of the coin that I'm often warning people about, of transhumanism and the coming singularity. Well, I think uh, Adam Kokesh is very much on the side that uh, this is something to be embraced and something that will transform society for the better. And I've very much resisted that idea. I think it's not quite so simple. But taking a look at technologies like 3D printing, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see how that could transform society for the better. Certainly, if it's implemented in the fashion that, at the very least, we see that coming into view right now, it's hard to imagine that as anything but a liberating technology. So there are glimmers of hope out there. And I think technology, of course, is a double-edged sword, and it can be used for freedom and liberty. So... Let's take a look at a story that sends shivers down my spine, but I guess the question is, should it necessarily? And we'll get this from PopSci.com. Of course, I uh, have to tip my hat to the producer behind the scenes, Dan, for letting me know about this story yesterday. But uh, it's from PopSci.com. The headline is, Ping Pong Ball-Sized Robots Can Swarm Together to Form a Smart Liquid. Individual droplets can join together and become something larger than themselves. Quote, some of the best robot swarms we've seen can either fly in formation or swim in a group. And while these are certainly awesome, they represent somewhat singular abilities. A new swarm that looks like a bunch of ping pong balls is both simpler and more complex, with potentially much more flexibility. Nicholas Coral, an assistant professor at the University of Colorado, has a team of engineers building basic robotic building blocks that can be taught to work together. After they learn their skills, the individual robots can be modified 
or used for a variety of purposes. The goal is to develop a robot skill set that can be reproduced from self-assembly and pattern recognition to shape-changing. Our robots are really designed for one particular problem, said Nicholas Farrow, a researcher assistant in computer science who is working on the project. When our robots are completed, we'll be able to apply them to problems we haven't even thought of right now. The team is led by postdoctoral researcher Dustin Racius, who works in in Corel's lab. The team built 20 robots, each the size of a ping-pong ball, which they call droplets. When the droplets swarm, they create a smart liquid, as Corel explains it. About 10 of them are actually functional, but the team is still writing code to make the droplets capable of swarming together. They could be modified to swim and clean up oil spills, potentially. Or they could be sent into space to assemble space station or satellite parts, or even self-assemble, Terminator-style into whatever structure is required. End quote. Well, of course, there is the specter of Terminator, which they bring up there, and, of course, this is the type of technology that when people see these robot swarms that they're working on behind the scenes in various research labs, the first thing that pops into many people's heads is the specter of Skynet there in the land of Terminator and the self-aware robots that uh, decide to rebel against their human masters and start eradicating the world of biological androids or whatever uh, people are referred to as these days. And it is uh, certainly that idea, that bit of predictive programming does inform to a large extent our our confrontation with this type of technology. What does it mean that in the near future we could imagine these types of robot swarms, these smart liquids that can swarm together in various ways and even change shape and things like this? Is it necessarily something that's going to be used to create the Skynet killers that will be unstoppable and kill us all? Well, not necessarily, I suppose. We could certainly imagine a universe without contradiction in which this type of technology exists without it eradicating the human species or rebelling against its human masters. I mean, there's no logical contradiction in imagining that. But it is uh, certainly a far way away from where we are now in our top-down hierarchical society where very few people at the very top control this type of technology and perhaps more importantly, how it is distributed in society and who ends up controlling it. So, of course, we famously have the concentration of power in the military-industrial complex, which unfortunately means that this type of technology is almost always appropriated for military purposes before it ever sees the light of day for you and I. And that is scary when we start to think of a world where that we're moving into where literally some general on some battlefield simply has to program a computer and the equivalent of what would today be considered an army would be at his disposal and would require zero further human input. If we can just program a bunch of robot killers, it's really a question of how people can resist such technology. And that's the type of nightmare scenario that I think we have to, at the very least, be somewhat concerned about, given the way that technology has always unfolded in our society in the past. And it's not to say that, again, that technology is inherently bad in itself, or that it couldn't be used for incredible liberating purposes, if that's what it was put to. But you will excuse me if I still continue to contain a few uh, a few grains of salt in my cellar in order to uh, 
to take some of these stories with a few of those grains, because I just can't for the life of me believe that, contrary to all of human history, that this technology is somehow going to be only used for the purposes of good and not for the purposes of destruction. So it is still a question of what we can do to insert ourselves in this mix at this present time and how we can utilize technologies instead of just passively wait for them to be rolled out into our society by the big corporations that are tied into this military intelligence industrial complex that unfortunately tends to dominate our society in this day and age, whether it be Apple or Microsoft or IBM or whatever other collaborators with the system there are out there that tend to be the ones that introduce these technologies. And there are ways that we can introduce ourselves into this. And that's something that I'd like to stress is that in these times where these vastly new technologies are coming along and really are threatening to completely overturn prevailing norms and standards, it is a time of flux and it is a time when we can insert ourselves into that societal conversation and actually start to change the way that we think about processes, industrial processes, manufacturing processes, etc., so as an example, once again, I'll point back to my recent podcast episode, which I hope people will check out if they haven't yet done so, the one on 3D printing, which again is this revolutionary technology that's coming along right now. In fact, it's been on the scene for a few decades, but it's finally starting to reach that sort of consumer level where we're likely to start seeing it filtering into the home in the next few years. And literally, people can print, manufacture uh, household items in their house on their desktop uh, just by pressing a button and well downloading a design or creating a design and then pressing a button and the printer does the rest and it literally prints objects this isn't spraying ink on paper this is literally creating objects out of materials such as extruded plastics or even concrete or titanium or steel and some of the more industrial 3d printers that are available now that can literally create objects that could not be created in any other way. And it's a, it's a remarkable technology, and I guarantee if things continue the way they're going, that in 10 to 20 years, it will utterly transform our economy. And one can imagine this is the birth of a trillion-dollar industry that we're seeing right now. But, of course, it's the question of who gets to be in control of this technology. And part of the great thing about 3D printing is that it's very, very difficult for anyone to actually control it in the sense that, uh, for example, the big industrial processes of the past could be controlled because only the very, 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 very richest of the rich could afford to invest in these technologies and to create the factories. Well, on the very opposite end of this scale, even people of relatively meager means will be able in the near future to afford a 3D printer that can literally manufacture the types of household goods that they would otherwise have to go out and buy. So this is putting technology in the hands of people that can actually then start to manufacture their own goods and completely go around that entire industrial manufacturing system. But it's still a question of things like digital rights management and who ends up controlling the uh, the patents that allow people to either uh, to to uh, use this technology or to inhibit them from using this technology. Oh, you can't create a cup of that type of design because that's been patented. There's a trademark on that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We can imagine how that's going to that that argument is going to shape up just by looking at what's happened with digital rights management and the uh, the iTunes uh, store and things like this, how these uh, battles have shaped up in the past, we can imagine that continuing with 3D printing technology unless we start to realize that these technologies 
give us the power to completely circumvent all of those corporations and their stupid trademarks and their patents and to allow us as individuals to become designers who then freely share our designs without regard to trademark or copyright or any of those uh, other intellectual property frauds that have been unfortunately the base of our industrial manufacturing system for so long. And that is something, for example, once again, I'll suggest people go to something like Thingiverse.com, where people are already forming communities where they freely trade designs for these types of objects. No strings attached. You download the design, and if you have a 3D printer, you put it in there and you press print, and pretty soon you're holding an object in your hand. Once again, this is an incredible technology that might be the real beginnings of something approaching the type of liberty that I think you and I and everyone listening to this broadcast are hoping for. But on that heady note, let's take a short break. Once again, the phone lines are open tonight. 1-800-313-9443. Anything you want to talk about, I'm waiting for your call. Welcome back to the program. Tonight on Corbett Report Radio, we're going over some news stories that have caught my attention from around the world. We're also taking your phone calls on anything that you'd like to bring to tonight's conversation. Once again, 1-800-313-9443. And we have a couple of callers waiting on the line. So let's go to your calls. First up, we have Merritt in California, who I've been corresponding with through my website for the last couple of days. Merritt, thanks for calling in tonight. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for uh, taking my call. I guess, you know, I'll be honest, uh, you know, I was watching that Cynthia McKinney, and, uh, you know, that is really good. And I like the whole thing that you did or that went on with the Lampour, you know, and I'm just, I'm wondering, I'd like to get a, maybe a paper of, you know, like the, 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 the what went on. And, and also, you know, I'd like to know where you're going to go from here. And uh, but uh, and then I, I'll just say one other thing just really quickly, and then I won't take too much of your time. But I go to Bakersfield College, and in Bakersfield, California, it seems like a lot of the people, really almost the whole city, if, if not really almost all of California, it just seems like there's so many people are asleep, and I don't know what to do to get them to wake up. But I'll be honest, uh, like the, the hard-hitting news that I've been hearing on your program has just been you know, really mind-opening, and I'm just wondering, is there some way that or something maybe that I could do or that could be done to try to bring the Corbett Report really to Bakersfield? You know, if there was some sort of easy one-size-fits-all solution, I would uh, be doing it myself, and I'd be bottling it and selling it. So I don't know if I have a pat answer for that, but the only thing that I can suggest is that you uh, should have to become a transmitter of this information in whatever way you can. And there's lots of different ways to do that, through newsletters or emails or uh, or starting a website or doing uh, whatever social media networking and or just simply bringing up this information in conversations, which is the type of social proof that's absolutely vitally important 
for all of this information. But uh, again, it's unfortunately, there's no easy answer to that because everybody has their own ways of relating to this information. And there's so few people out there that are really doing this in the alternative media um, that unfortunately it's still a small voice out there in the wilderness. And hopefully together we can start to grow that. But uh, talking about the Kuala Lumpur 9-11 uh, conference that we did and myself and Cynthia McKinney and others, uh, that all of those videos are now available online, and I'm going to be putting together a kind of summary video just to let people know about the conference itself. I'll also be putting up the transcript of my own presentation along with links to all of the information that I cited in there. And uh, in terms of where the Kuala Lumpur conference is going kind of generally, uh, we I can tell you that we are sort of working behind the scenes right now to put together some type of commission that will st- take this to the next step and actually start uh, doing some of the work that the 9-11 Commission did not do. So we're starting to put that together, and there are some ideas floating around there between some of the participants, but uh, nothing really finalized yet, and I don't want to uh, to spill too many of the beans beforehand. But uh, but we are going to try to take that to the next level. So anything that, again, that anyone out there at Bakersfield College or anywhere else in the world can do to help spread this information is muchly appreciated. So my uh, tip of my hat to you and the work that you're doing to let people know about this work, Merritt. Okay, well, listen, well, look, thank you so much, and I'm definitely going to be in touch. And, and I guess just on leaving real quick, I'll just say that this uh, James Tracy and uh, from the uh, memoryholeblog.com, that interview with you and him about the academics, the way that you are, uh, the way you check Chomsky is really, you know, I think it's on point. And also, you know, like I had mentioned to you about Amy Goodman and Democracy Now, because they should be checked as well. But also, too, you know, I just want to say about Bill Maher. You know, like I've I've heard a few on, on his programs where people from the audience that he would just like disrespect the nine one one and and I'll just say, in closing, that I find that it seems like that. Well, there's three people. I think there's the sheep that don't know, and then there's two, then there's the other two. There's there's I don't want to say us and them, but it's the people who know that who kind of know the really the truth as far as controlled demolition and all of that. And then there's the other people that seem to be the deniers, like Chomsky and Bill Maher. And and so I, it just seems like that that those people to me that they need to be called out when they when 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 you can call them out and the way that you guys really you know check Chomsky I think that that's really on point and really we need much more of that. Well, I hear you and I agree, and I think I'll uh, probably be doing some more work towards people like Amy Goodman and others in the quasi pseudo alternative media who also do cover up a lot of these issues so i think there's a lot more to be said and i'm glad that people are responding to that so merit thanks for the call okay thank you all right let's uh let's move along we've got bill in idaho on the line so bill uh what's on your mind tonight well bless you as usual mr corbett excellent work obviously your efforts republic broadcasting efforts as well uh would be as our heavenly father would wish that there would be not one lost. And uh, after the biblical study that preceded your broadcast, I don't know whether you had a chance to uh, listen to it, but it was very informative, very uplifting, and obviously has miraculous effects immediately upon transmission, and I've mentioned it before. I hope there are more broadcasts of that nature. Rick Adams has been great about allowing his airtime to be used by T.G., and the uh, rest of the folks, uh, 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 the gentleman, uh, Joe Church from uh, Philadelphia, is absolutely wonderful, wonderful instructional. But I 
wanted to ask your indulgence. There's, uh, you know, uh, uh, September 2012, Voice of the Martyrs. I was hoping that the Christian Patriot uh, uh, community would uh, possibly uh, lend their ear as well as their effort. I know everybody is extremely busy, and yet at the same time, a lady that I've been praying for and trying to... Uh, uh, All right, Bill, we're going to break. We're going to have to leave it there, but if you want to s- hang on, we can pick you up on the other side. So let's uh, take a short breather, and we'll be right back with more Corbett Report Radio after these messages. It don't mean a thing. All you got to do is swing. Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Tonight on the program, we are going over news, headlines, and information from around the world. And we're also taking your phone calls. So once again, the phone lines are open, 1-800-313-9443. And on that note, just before the break, we were just finishing up with Bill from Idaho. So, uh, Bill, continue on. What were you saying about rallying the Patriot community? Well, uh, it... The meritorious young gentleman that you had on previous, uh, being an encouragement, uh, Asia Bibi has been in jail for 1,500 days for professing, uh, faith in our Lord Jesus Messiah, Yeshua. And, uh, she's in Pakistan. Her husband was in, uh, Lahore Black Hole Dungeon. Uh, he's out. Uh, she's still being held. And I would ask, uh, uh, people to, uh, call the, uh, uh, Pakistani Embassy, uh, New York, uh, 212-879-5800, and the New York, uh, uh, Consulate, uh, 202-349-3179. I put, uh, the, uh, uh, website on everything that I hand out as far as attempting, you know, to inform people in my local community. And can you give uh, us the website again? Uh, it, it's, uh, uh, I've got to grab it here. I'm sorry. Uh, it's, uh, uh, voiceofthemartyrs.com and, uh, their actual site in regard to this situation, uh, is a call for mercy, a call for mercy, and there's also one other as well while I dig it out. Any more than uh, the situation with Edgar Steele, freeedgarsteele.com. I am absolutely amazed that somebody hasn't uh, made a uh, presidential request for clemency, even though the man sits in jail as a uh, prisoner of war. But it's a uh, voice of the martyrs. Uh, if they go to the website, they can get uh, the other uh, <laughs> The other particular information. All right, excellent. Well, I hope people will go check that out and take a look into that. So, Bill, thank you very much for the call. And and let's move on. We've got a lot of information to get through tonight, so let's move on to some of the other stories that we're covering tonight. And we're going to move on to a story from RT that uh, comes from our friend Niall Bowie of nilbowie.blogspot.com, who's talking about North Korea. North Korea's Socialist Winter Engagement or Isolation. And he's writing about the recent North Korean satellite launch that just took place here that basically, once again, got all of East Asia into a tizzy and got the United States into a tizzy as well. 
perhaps more importantly. And, of course, every time North Korea launches anything, it's a question of, is this some sort of rocket launch? Is this testing the technology to deliver their nuclear warheads, etc.? So he talks a little bit about that uh, from his recent trip to North Korea, and hopefully we'll be able to get him on the program to talk more about North Korea in the near future. But there's also an incredible photo essay, basically, here of his trip and some of the pictures that he took there. So that's up at RT.com. Once again, that's North Korea's Socialist Winter Engagement or Isolation. And I will put not only that uh, that uh, article, but of course all the articles that we talk about tonight in the show notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com. So if you miss any of these articles, please just go there and you'll get the link. And I also wanted to highlight something that was sent in by uh, uh, Phil Restino of Veterans for Peace, who has an article that's up at VeteransToday.com right now, and it's Will Anti-War Orgs Get Behind HCR 107 to Prevent War on Syria? And he's talking about the so-called anti-war organizations that tend to not care when the war is being waged by people like Obama, but uh, that being what it is. This article reads, quote, Well, it looks like Obama is going to attack Syria with at most token opposition by the national anti-war organizations, as was the case when he phoned in the order to bomb the crap out of Libya back on March 19th, 2011. After a year's worth of bloodshed in Libya and simultaneous drumbeating for invading Syria in the same manner, HCON Resolution 107 was introduced on March 7, 2012 by Representative Walter Jones, threatening impeachment of the president if he were to take the U.S. to war without a proper or authorization by Congress. Even with the imminent threat of a U.S.-NATO military invasion of Syria, which could come any day now before the new Congress is sworn in next month after the holidays, there is little, if no, mention of the Republican congressman's HCR 107 from the left-only-need-apply national anti-war organizations, let alone any public endorsements or calls for Congress to support and enact the resolution. The most we'll probably get from the national left-only-need-apply anti-war organizations to include our own veterans for peace, is some kind of meaningless CYA statement of opposition while the Democrat war criminal President Obama launches another unbated, blatant war of aggression, killing and maiming thousands of innocent brown people, again with the left cover he's been so freely provided over the past four years. Then he goes on to link to a conversation with uh, Representative Walter Jones, which if you haven't seen, you should check out. Again, uh, Congressman Jones, one of the few Congress critters who's actually trying to do something uh, within the uh, bought and paid for phony political system to try to put the brakes on the absolutely incredible overturning of all previous precedent in the presidential line of succession, insofar as Obama is now claiming he doesn't even need Congress's rubber stamp approval to go to war and to commit American military forces anywhere around the globe. Now he can do that based on the UN's authority, which was what ultimately resulted from the invasion of Libya. That was not uh, even authorized by Congress, not even with the rubber stamp. So basically, the United States has gone from having it hardwired into the Constitution that only Congress could declare a war to the fact that the United States doesn't wage wars anymore because that would require an actual declaration. So now they just go to Congress for approval of uh, of military actions, and uh, now even that is being shoved off the table. We saw that in Libya, and there's, of course, the chance that that could happen again in Syria. 
So Congressman Jones trying to head that off at the pass and his HCR 107 not getting a lot of traction with the types of anti-war groups that you would expect to at least give some token token uh, support to something like this. But no, it's it's Obama. It's the Obama Sia who's bombing all those brown people. So it's okay. Just like it was okay for Clinton, I guess, to be bombing in Europe and all of the other things that he did. Because again, when it's our side, quote unquote, doing it, it's fine. So if the left uh, is going to be criticizing anyone, it will only be a puppet on the right. And of course, vice versa. So let's look forward to another four years of basically a left puppet getting left cover for his left killings. And uh, I, something tells me, I, I don't know, but maybe maybe we can interview someone on this, but something tells me that the people who are being bombed by these drones, etc., don't really care if it's a Democrat or a Republican administration doing it. You know, just that's just this crazy hunch that I have. At any rate, that's a pretty depressing story. Here's a story that, in fact, should be a cause for celebration because we've been hearing nonstop in the media for the past several years about how the world is going to end in a watery death as sea levels are rising, rising, I tell you, because of man-made global warming. Or maybe not. In fact, there's a new paper that perhaps upends some of the scaremongering that's going on about carbon dioxide and how it's inevitably going to end in the watery overtaking of the the low-lying areas of the earth and this comes from via hockeystick.blogspot.com new paper finds sea levels were significantly higher during past interglacials a paper published today in quaternary research finds sea levels on the island of curacao southern caribbean during the last interglacial were up to nine meters higher than the present and that during another interglacial period 400,000 years ago sea levels were up to 20 meters higher than the present. According to the paper, these significantly higher sea levels during prior interglacials require major ice sheet loss from Greenland and Antarctica. The authors determined sea levels by dating fossilized reefs that are presently located high above current sea levels. The paper also shows sea levels in the Red Sea were up to 8 meters higher than the present within the past 5,000 years of the current interglacial and up to 12 meters higher than the present during the last interglacial. This and many other papers debunk claims by climate alarmists that recent sea level rises unprecedented, unnatural, or accelerated. In fact, sea levels rose at a constant rate without acceleration during the 20th century and have decelerated since 2005 to a rate of only 1.2 millimeters per year. That's less than 5 inches Per century. So, uh, once again, the most alarmist claims of the alarmists themselves falling apart in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. But is any media outlet going to run with that headline? Somehow, I kind of doubt it. But there it is. You can go, and there's the link to the actual paper itself, so you can go and read through it if you are so inclined to find out more about sea levels and why the current alarm about the sea levels is, in fact, not warranted. But again, probably a lot of people out there already know that. It's just a question of getting it even further documented. And the documentation on these types of things is difficult because, as I say, so few media outlets are willing to run the headlines about non-alarmist claims. Uh, It doesn't tend to sell newspapers or sell uh, TV advertising quite as effectively when you come out and say, 
oh, guess what, everybody? All of that alarm about the sea level is going to kill us all. Actually, it's not. And in fact, the uh, rate of sea level rise is decelerating. That's not going to sell papers. That's not going to sell advertising. So at the end of the day, only the alarmist claims get published in the media, and that forms the echo chamber by which people unfortunately start to believe in uh, in a lot of bunkum, basically. That's the long and short of it. I know that there's a lot of work to be done on the climate change issue, especially as we head into the second term of Herr Obama. And unfortunately, all we can see likely to come out of this second uh, term is more on the climate change myth and more hype about this. Uh, probably a concerted effort to get some form of uh, carbon tax or cap and trade through. And uh, we'll see all of the types of things that we thought we had left behind during the last round of alarmism coming back to the surface. And one of the things you might notice in this latest round of climate alarmism is that it has completely changed. It is no longer called global warming because, of course, there has been no warming over the past 16 years. So we are now seeing the transition to this hype over the climate uh, shift that into extreme weather events. And now every time there's a hurricane, every time there's a storm, every time there's a drought, every time there's a flood, every time there's snow, every time there's no snow, it's going to be hyped as this is the face of the future of the Earth under climate change. And it's very difficult to say anything against that because there will always be floods and or droughts and or rain and or snow and or freezing and or rising temperatures. And uh, the only, once again, I just say, what can possibly falsify such bunkum? But there's a lot to be said on that, and we have a lot of documentation on that. And so it is my uh, my promise that in the new year, we will I will be putting out more on this issue in a more concerted effort to get to some of the facts and to bring some attention to studies like these that actually go to undermine the climate alarmist myth. So I hope uh, people will stay tuned for that. That's all I'll say at the moment. I don't want to oversell it before it's here. But uh, moving right along, we're skipping around stories here quite a bit, but let's move on to another topic that uh, people might have seen being talked about recently, and I think, I hope, for good reason. Uh, we'll just take this from the Globe and Mail, from my home and native land of Canada. Instagram trips over line between profit and pi- privacy. And this is a hugely popular mobile app has been thrust into the center of one of the biggest battlegrounds in online commerce a company's control over its users' data. Instagram, a photo-sharing application for smartphones that was purchased this year by Facebook Inc. for $1 billion, prompted anger from thousands of its more than 30 million users this week when it announced a change to its terms of service agreement, the virtual document every user must agree to in order to use the app. Under the new terms, which comes into effect January 16th, Instagram can effectively do anything with its users' photos, including, many of its users fear, sell them to corporate advertisers without asking permission or offering compensation to the people who took the photos, end quote. As I say, I'm sure probably a lot of you have heard about this over the past few days because it has blown into a big story. In fact, it blew up into such a big story that now Instagram is coming out and saying, oops, did we say that we can sell your photos to advertisers? We didn't mean that we'd sell your photos to advertisers. You're just misreading all of that. 
don't worry, we'll clean up the language and, and reissue that terms of service uh, change. So now they're trying to backtrack as millions of people either start to delete their Instagram accounts or threaten to. And uh, personally, I don't use it and never have and couldn't care less. But it's a sign of the economy that we live in, I suppose, that this is major economic news. And it's amazing to me that an app like that can get a billion dollars, one billion dollars for uh, a service that does not seem particularly useful to me. And the only way to monetize something like that is if they take this vast treasure trove of photographs that people upload to them every day and start to monetize it by selling it out for advertising. So what do people expect? At any rate, let's go uh, back to the phone lines. Uh, We'll talk to Anthony in New York City. Anthony, thanks for joining us tonight. How are you listening to the program there in New York? Yeah, uh, so um, I have two ways. Thank you for having me on. Actually, how are you um, listening to the uh, program there in New York? Are you listening online? Um, yes, I can listen online, but right now I'm actually listening through the phone. Right. Um, okay. I'm off, yeah, I'm, I'm off from work, so I decided to listen in. I usually listen at work because I work at night. And I just uh, wanted to ask um, if you could shed some light on what happened in Benghazi. Most people are saying it's some sort of false flag incident that took place. If you could just kind of go over that a little bit. I kind of didn't get the details as to what happened in Benghazi. Well, the long story short, the uh, the embassy, or what was passing for an embassy, there wasn't actually an official embassy. There was more like a uh, consular service there that was uh, positioned in Benghazi, was attacked on September 11th. It was immediately blamed on this supposed Muslim video that was released, but as I'm sure many people know by now, that was a big psyop, and in fact it had nothing to do with this Innocence of Muslims video. It was, in fact... As David Petraeus's uh, what, what do you call it, fling lover, what, 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 whatever you say, she <laughs> came out a couple of weeks before the, that whole scandal blew up, saying that in fact the reason that that was attacked was because the CIA was holding prisoners in a secret compound in Benghazi, and this attack was to try to free or to uh, draw attention to those prisoners at any rate, which is extremely, extremely big news, because, of course, under Obama, one of the things he came in and supposedly said he did was to outlaw these secret CIA prisons that had been springing up under Bush. And so if that is, in fact, the case, and they were holding prisoners there in some secret CIA compound in Benghazi, that is a direct violation of what is currently the federal guidelines. So that would be a huge story, but no one has picked up on that, as far as I know. And I'm not sure if it's ever been determined if that's true or if she was just talking out her posterior, but that's at least part of it. Another part of it is that many of the people who were killed in that Benghazi raid turned out to be CIA agents who were running guns up to Syria. And we are coming out right up against the break, so let's take a short break. We'll be right back after these messages. All right, friends, welcome back. We are here in the final minutes of Corbett Report Radio. Just before the break, Anthony in New York City was asking about the Benghazi false flag or what seemed to be some sort of September surprise that was set up and potentially, as some people have uh, indicated, as an attempt to undermine Obama in the run-up to the presidential elections. I think there are some indications that that may have been the case, especially because 
as we now know, the CIA contingent that was stationed there very close to where these murders were taking place were ordered to stand down. They were ordered not to go into the aid of the people who were being killed out there. So we know that there was some sort of stand down in effect. And then we know that the consequences of all of this in the end, what we've seen playing out over the past couple of months is the the Brennan, uh, sorry, the Petraeus affair and the scandal there and all of that. And uh, it's a lot to go through, but there are indications that basically this was some sort of uh, coup from within, from within the ranks of the military that is now being dealt with via various sex scandals and other such uh, red herrings to try to get rid of some of this top brass that seem to be rebelling against the Obama administration. At least that's the reading that I think looks most likely. And I went through some of this information back in Corporate Report Radio, episode 256, Operation Betrayus from Benghazi to Brennan, which is available for download from CorbettReport.com. So I hope people will check that out for more information on this. Anthony, does that at least uh, answer some of the questions or some of the points that uh, we have to make about this? Yeah, definitely. That does fill in a lot. Thank you very much. And I did see that report, and I believe that report had um, uh, another YouTube video where they actually um, uh, want, somebody um, linked it to Stanley Corp, that um, uh, strange, bizarre Stanley Corp. Where That's right, yeah. And it, I, I hope people will go and actually look at that uh, that video that I had linked up in that, in that uh, report, because, again, as you say, it ties back to some interesting corporations, and it also try, ties back to uh, uh, John Brennan, who's been floated as the potential replacement for Petraeus. So I hope, again, I hope people are connecting those dots and taking a look at what, what develops from this. Is it safe to say that some of these top brass have heavy, huge uh, ties and investments, money investments, in some of these um, um, think tanks and other kinds of co- companies that they have out there? There is absolutely no doubt there's a revolving door between the top brass and then the defense complex, generally speaking, whether that be think tanks or also some of the defense contractors specifically. And we saw that revealed even by the New York Times a few years ago with the big Pentagon uh, PR scandal, where it turned out that all of the generals who were talking about and hyping up the Iraq war happened to be on the payroll of many of the corporations that benefited from the contracts from that war. So a blatant uh, conflict of interest. But it just goes to show that at the very top, obviously, a lot of these top brass get their golden parachute into the defense contractors once they retire from the the military. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely uh, demonstrable ties between those those uh, different sectors, which are really just one and the same at the very top. Wow. Thanks a lot. And um, uh, if you go back to that same YouTube source, he put up something recently about um, uh, what happened at those horrible set of events over in Connecticut. Um, about what happened there and some of the strange and bizarre connections going on there as well. Um, um, other than that, thanks a lot for taking my call. That was excellent. Well, thank you for that information. I haven't checked that out yet. And for people who don't know, we're talking about a YouTube user called Montagraph, M-O-N-T-A-G-R-A-P-H. M-O-N-T-A-G-R-A-P-H, Montagraph. So if you want to check that out on YouTube, and I will too, I haven't seen his work on the Connecticut shootings, so I will take a look at what he's saying about that, because he did do some great work on the Benghazi scandal. All right, that's going to be it for tonight. Uh, we've gone around the world with as much news as can be packed into one hour of radio transmission. I hope you enjoyed it and found it fruitful. And if so, I hope you'll be here to join us again 23 hours from now because we're going to be having Brock West on from the Asia-Pacific Perspective blog to talk about everything that's happening over here in the Asia-Pacific region. So I hope you'll join us. Until then, thank you all for listening and take care.